0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, we're continuing uh, through this gospel. We've entered chapter 17, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. As we turn to to chapter 17, from 16 to 17, uh, we have really a turning point. If you remember back in chapter 16, the second half, verse 21, Jesus began to teach His disciples for the first time in their ministry, recorded here in Matthew, that He, the Son of Man, must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be crucified, killed, and then on the third day raised again. And this indeed was a shock. We saw how Peter responded to this news, and very likely all of the disciples. It was a shock to them. Uh, What would this mean, that their teacher, their Lord, the Good Shepherd would be killed. What, would it, what does this mean about the nature of the kingdom and this kingdom that he is, has inaugurated? What does this rule look like that he will be taken from them? But not only did he begin to teach them about the necessity of his suffering and his crucifixion, but immediately following, Jesus then taught them that if he, they are going to follow after him, they must deny himself, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross. And follow him. So they are learning about the necessity of Christ's suffering and death. They're learning about the necessity of their own cross bearing. So they have been with Jesus. We could say in the valley, in the valley of ministry, right? But now they go from the valley up the mountain. It's a simple and wonderful picture: from the valley up to the mountaintop, from learning about suffering and cross bearing to learning about the majesty and glory of Christ. And it's recorded the same in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same sequence of events. Number one, Jesus is teaching about his suffering and death. Number two, the call of the disciples to bear their own cross. And then three, up the mountain to behold the transfiguration of the Lord. And so it is here that the disciples are lifted up for a brief time out of the valley to get a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus Christ in the midst of their ministry and in the midst of the valley. And that glimpse, I would suggest, is indeed for us as well. We need to be lifted from the valley of life to to behold the glory of Christ. And uh, that is our hope and our aim in hearing God's word. So Matthew 17 Uh, Beginning at uh, verse 1. Listen now to God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, "'Rise and have no fear.' And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, "'Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead.' And the disciples asked him, "'Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come?' He answered, "'Elijah does come, and he will restore all things.' But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Just two very brief words or quotes to help direct and apply what we have just heard this morning. One comes from Jack Aloul, a late French philosopher. He said these words, The aim of life has been forgotten. The end, the goal, has been left behind. Man has sat, set out at a tremendous speed to go nowhere. Uh, that defines very much our culture, and sometimes that happens in the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian faith can be lost sometimes amidst the pace and the current of life moving us along. You may feel that way this morning. And the transfiguration of Christ Christ helps to reorient our very purpose. Just like the disciples, Jesus desires for his people to be pulled away for a time, up a mountain, to be alone with him, that we might uh, behold his radiance in his glory. And then from Oswald Chambers, The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. Be careful about one thing only says our Lord, your relationship to me. Beware of any work for God which enables you to evade concentration on him. Now serving our Lord, And uh, beholding His glory are not exclusive. We can serve the Lord and at the very same time behold His glory, but we don't want to miss delighting and beholding in the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and the transfiguration helps to serve that very end. Uh, Those are some of the most delightful times in the Christian faith when there is a deeper sense of the presence of God in, uh, in our lives. Well, we're told here in verse one, first of all, that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the so called inner circle, up this high mountain by themselves. And so he's removed these three from the pace of life, the current of life, the demands of ministry, up this high mountain. And that's application and instruction alone for us. We need, as his people, to be alone regularly, daily alone with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many believe that this is Mount Hermon, the mountain that they went up, just 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's over 9,000 feet high. It's part of a beautiful snow-covered mountain range most of the year. And while we don't know how far or exactly where they went or Jesus took his disciples, when we read of Jesus going up a high mountain, it is... For uh, the Bible reader to trigger something, that something powerful is very likely to happen. Because throughout the biblical story, mountains are places where God has often acted powerfully. Uh, We think of Moses going up Mount Sinai, and there, God revealing his very word uh, to Moses, his very presence. We think of Elijah at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, the fire of the Lord being poured out and uh, overcoming the prophets of Baal. Uh, Jesus' own ministry we've seen and we will continue to see through Matthew is marked by mountains. He began his preaching ministry, going up and preaching the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, a mountain, a high hill. Uh, The Great Commission in Matthew 28 at the end of the Gospel The disciples go to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and it is there that Jesus gives them the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, There's a reason that we call these powerful experiences of God's presence mountaintop experiences uh, in our lives. And there are many varied ways that the light of God's presence uh, can break through and shine uh, brightly in our lives and before us. Uh, it'll happen on Christian retreats or uh, mission trips, uh, times alone with the Lord with His Word open before us, and the words of God uh, from the pages of Scripture can jump out and grab our heart and grab our attention and uh, awaken our love uh, more deeply. It happens. It happens in times of public worship as we sing together, uh, the praises of, of God. And he works in our hearts powerfully. It can happen in times of, of witnessing uh, the beauty of God reflected in what He has made in a sunrise or at the ocean, seeing the breaking of the waves. And one of the reasons that God gives His people the mountaintop is because most of life is lived in the valley. Uh, whether it's just the normal demands of life, sometimes a sense of routine or monotony or the mundane, or real times of deep hardship, potential despair, suffering that we may go through. As I was reflecting on these words and this story of the disciples really going from the valley up uh, to the mountaintop, I was reminded of John Wesley's uh, story and perhaps his conversion If you know his story, he was the 18th century uh, Christian revivalist and preacher. And Wesley came to a point at age about 35 as a missionary in real despair. Uh, He had spent over two years in the New World, down in the colony of Georgia, seeking to convert and instruct the Indians there. And he concluded from his trip that while he went to instruct the Indians about conversion and what the Christian faith was, he concluded, I myself was not yet converted, as he later reflects. 35, in near despair, deeply discouraged, seeing very little fruit of his efforts, questioning his faith, and he records famously in his journal, May 24, 1738, and he writes, Awoke, at 5 a.m., and read these words from the Scriptures. God has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And that night, with reluctance in his heart, in London, he made his way to a Christian meeting in Aldersgate. And as he arrived into the room, a man was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Surprisingly, he was reading from the preface. This is the preface, and he says about eight forty-five p.m. While the man was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, "I felt my heart strangely warmed." And kind of famous words: "I felt my heart strangely warmed." He says, "I felt I did trust in Christ." Christ alone for salvation. And there was an assurance given me that he had taken away my sins, yes, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And it was a watershed moment for John Wesley. The reality of this God, whom he knew in his mind, knew in his head, became increasingly brighter in his heart. It was a change. He said, I came to know this God loves me. And perhaps something similar is happening with the disciples up on the mountain. They experience and they witness a greater sense of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And the particular words through the text, of course, highlight this glory that the disciples witness. If you look at verse 2, it says, He was transfigured before them. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9, we're told that this actually happened while Jesus was praying. So this is an intimate moment. Jesus is praying to uh, our Heavenly Father, and the disciples are there witnessing this. He was transfigured. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. That is His essential form. This is not just a mask or a covering. His essential form is is changed. This is radical. And not only that, but everything here is about the light, the brightness, the radiance of Christ. Uh, Three times we read of various forms of light. His face shone like the sun. His clothing white as light. And then did you notice in verse 5 later, it's not just a cloud, it's a bright cloud that overshadowed. All of them. There's probably no place in all of the Gospels where the brightness of Christ shines more. The glory of Christ shines brighter than here. The baptism of Jesus may come close. We learned of that back in chapter three. Jesus came up out of the Jordan River. Uh, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. The divine voice broke forth, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, Kind of this powerful moment in which the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are are manifest. But here, Jesus' glory is as bright as the sun. And as we heard read earlier in the scripture reading, so bright, so powerful is this that Peter will write about it himself in 2 Peter 1. He says, we were eyewitnesses of this, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we heard the divine voice born from heaven while with him on the holy mountain, a real event that Peter's recalling. So Peter saw, Peter heard, Peter experienced this. And I think there's something very specific and particular here for us, because you and I did not experience this. We didn't see this. We didn't hear this. We were not in the shoes of Peter, right? and yet I would say that the same glory and the same light of Christ shines or has shone in every believer, in the heart of every believer who has trusted in Christ, in his gospel. Uh, Pastor Bill prayed this from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those perishing. They are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But for us, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every believer who has trusted in the Lord Jesus and the good news of his grace has a light that pierces their heart. Paul is reminding the church in Corinth of this fact. This light that is turned on, this light that is shown in his life, the veils removed, he's brought from darkness into light, something captured captures the attention of the the new believer. And it is this, the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face or the person of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter and James and John are witnessing there, physically with their eyes, the majesty, the brightness of Jesus Christ. And yet what we see here is that while the glory of Christ is revealed to them, they struggle to embrace this, don't they? They struggle to know how to live in the face of it. They struggle to know how to live in this kind of spiritual intimacy there in the revelation of Christ. Uh, Peter's actions reveal a kind of uncertainty and even confusion in what to do on his part. Uh, Luke's Gospel gives us further details We're told that as Jesus was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appear, representing very likely the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah, the whole Old Testament story, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole story is about the supremacy of Christ. And yet, what are Peter, James, and John doing? Luke tells us they're sleeping, they're asleep. This is only the most majestic, highest point in in their ministry with Jesus, and they are sleeping. And it won't be the last time. These same three will be with Jesus, not only up on the mountain, but in one of the lowest points, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus went to pray to his heavenly Father, He asks those three to keep watch. He comes back, and what's happening? They're sleeping. At the highest and lowest points of Jesus' ministry, the disciples are sleeping. What does this reflect? What does this reveal about the nature of of disciples or weakness of faith? Here, too, they are asleep. Uh, we We remember they awake. They see the glory of Christ. Two men talking with Jesus. And, but not only are they sleeping, Peter, after awaking, and he speaks up with to me what's borderline amusing words and even uh, strange words. Perhaps some of the commentators recognize that he's just he's not sure what to say. So he says in verse four, uh, "It is good that we are here." And I want to say, you think? Good observation. Good word, Peter. Good word. <laughs> If you wish, he says, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark's gospel specifically tells us that Peter did not know what he was talking about. He did not know what to say. Uh, Some suggest that the tents are a commemoration of the Feast of Booths, uh, remembering and commemorating uh, the wilderness wandering and God's call annually for the people of God to make booths. He didn't know what to say. I guess there's a reason people have called Peter the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. right? Just days prior, we remember his last attempt at directing the Lord. What did that prove? That was a disaster. Lord, suffering the cross? That shall never happen to you. And he's rebuked. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind. And here again, though he does not know what to say, he speaks up. And it is kind of humorous. He keeps on talking. In fact, in the original, in verse 5, there is an emphasis here. While he was still speaking, just be quiet, Peter. He, He keeps speaking, and then, behold, the bright cloud overshadows them. And so, Peter, he's often saying the wrong things, and he's saying too many things. And what Peter and the disciples are learning is not only crucial for them, I think it's crucial for us. It's crucial for the church today. Here they are, called to this sacred space, in this sacred moment. Not that they would take center stage, but to witness and to worship Christ who is on center stage. And yet, instead of beholding the glory of Christ, Peter can only think of doing something. What really was Peter planning with these tents? What's the plan there? And it's three tents. This is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, not an equality of of, uh, Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Instead of waiting, hearing the divine voice, Peter can only hear himself talking. So we see this tendency to put oneself at the center of the stage. What can I do for Jesus? What can I build for Jesus? Interesting, his actions are actually impeding, they're hindering his potential to behold the awe, the wonder at the presence of Christ. Uh, Jesus did not invite Peter or the others up the mountain to do anything for him at all. Peter wasn't called by Jesus. You and I are not called by Jesus because he needs us. He does not need us. He calls us because we need him. We need to witness his glory, to behold and delight in his majesty. Down in Orlando, Florida, at Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, is their chapel. And uh, just like here uh, in the center of their chapel or sanctuary is their pulpit. And if you make your way around, this side of the pulpit are engraved words. And those words engraved are from John 12, verse 21. It's when Greeks uh, meet Philip and and they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's what's engraved on the pulpit. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus, Perhaps a reminder, not only for the preacher, but what a great reminder for us as the aim. The aim is to see and behold the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the clearest place to behold his majesty is here in his word. It's here in His Word. This is why, when the bright cloud overshadowed them in verse 5, the divine voice breaks forth. And what what does God say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. How we need this more than anything in our Christian living to hear from His voice, from His Word. Listen to Him because there's many voices daily competing for our attention seeking to grab your attention and your heart listen to him there's the voice in our culture of worldly success build your life around me and you'll know joy there's the voice of despair just stop persevering give up what's it's worth The voice of pleasure, do what feels best. The voice of pride, life, it's about you. Serve yourself. Many are the voices, and yet the same voice that broke forth on the mountain continues to speak today from His word here. Listen to Him. We need to hear the voice of our Lord. We need to hear His voice in many ways. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. Feed upon me and you'll be satisfied. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. We need to hear uh, the voice of our Lord. Well, it is a mountaintop experience that they see and that they experience with Jesus, but it cannot last. Uh, We were not made in this life to remain on the mountaintop. Maybe that's why Peter wanted to build the tents. Let's stay here. Let's stay here. The mountaintop is better than the valley. But you can't stay on the summit. Most of life is lived in the valley. They come down the mountain. Jesus says, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised. And the disciples ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is a reference to the prophet Malachi ending the Old Testament, that one will come to prepare the way, an Elijah figure, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And they're asking about this. And Jesus says, Elijah has come. Reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah figure to prepare the way. And they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. I want us to see here in conclusion that the glory of Christ, the majesty of Christ, witnessed on the mountain, is wrapped and shrouded in suffering and humiliation. The glorified one is the suffering one. That Jesus, whose face shone like the sun, is also the one who shed his blood for us. It is his suffering that makes him shine. That's what we heard earlier from Philippians 2 in the call to worship. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Oh gracious God, how we thank you for the majesty and the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. How We thank You, Lord, that by Your Spirit and Word, You awaken our hearts to behold and to delight in Your goodness and glory. Lord, we pray that Your Word, uh, that this very historical event, the transfiguration, uh, the same brightness and light that shone there on that mountain, as Paul says, would shine in our hearts That we as believers would reflect upon the truth and reality that you have shown in our hearts to open our eyes, to behold the glory, uh, your glory revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we embrace this. Uh, Lord, may this fuel and give us strength as we continue our lives, indeed, in many and various ways in the valley. But encourage us For you are the risen one, you are the exalted one. Keep our eyes fixed upon him. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.